Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Hello and good morning. Welcome to the inaugural edition of the Muniland podcast. Hopefully it's going to be a monthly episode-driven look into the municipal market. My name is Eric Kazatsky. I'm the head of municipal strategy here at Bloomberg Intelligence. And our goal each month is to bring in someone from the municipal marketplace to help us get a deeper perspective on what trends are the most important to follow and how we can get a better outlook into where relative value is going to be in the coming months and year, given all the changes in the federal government and the interest rate landscape. This morning, we're being joined by Neil Azus from Rareview Capital LLC, a fairly newcomer into the municipal space. And it's always interesting when we have a newcomer coming into Muniland. Instead of me reading the bio for Neil, I thought it would be best if he introduced himself. So with that, I want to turn it over. Neil, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Rareview. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate being here for your inaugural podcast and uh, look forward to speaking with you. So our firm, Rareview Capital, is an independent SEC registered investment advisor and ETF sponsor. Above all else, Eric, we champion goals-based investment management. We believe aligning investment solutions with investor goals is the best approach to wealth management. And the days of investing by style box or exposure to a region simply does not deliver the real world outcomes people seek. And so overall at our firm, we seek to address the three seminal investment issues of our time. The first one being is how do you find yield in a low or zero interest bound environment? Number two, how do you work through the loss of your purchasing power? So inflation. And number three, how do you deal with a catastrophic loss in the stock market? And so all of our products and services are geared around those three seminal investment questions. In terms of my background, I am the founder and managing member and chief investment officer of Rareview Capital. I head the firm's investment team and I oversee all portfolio and risk management activities. And I also serve as the portfolio manager to the Rareview funds. I've been fortunate enough to have worked at some great firms, including working alongside some of the best minds in the industry that have pioneered various products that we use every day in the capital markets. I have a multi-asset and global macro investing background. And the best way to think about me is as follows. I am not a bull or a bear. I am neither an inflationist or a deflationist. And I have no religion when it comes to contentious topics like gold or China. They're just another commodity or country to us. Ultimately, I'm agnostic to the region, the asset class, or whether something is a cash or derivative instrument. And the benefit to all of that is that it allows me to be process-driven and remove human emotion. That's fantastic. Thanks for that deep dive. We could just sort of hop right in here. I think the one key question I have, and it's always interesting to me because a lot of the new products that we see launched are really coming from bigger names that have been in the municipal industry for decades. The Van X of the world, the Nuveens of the world, the Pimcos. It's always exciting when I see a firm like yourself sort of pop up on our radar. And, and we've been watching you guys over the past year and, and the performance and growth has been excellent, I may say. But, you know, why munis? So when we look at the products that are out there that require different levels of expertise, 
There's a set of products that are very traditional that you can find at a lot of the bulge bracket investment banks or wirehouses that distribute them. But other products in the more non-traditional category, and that can range from private credit, closed-end funds, business development companies, taxable municipals, short-term high yield. All of those require a level, a different level of specialty or expertise. And we think that there's a lot of opportunity in those markets that have different types of characteristics than the traditional ones. They have different risk characteristics, meaning they can be less or more risky at times. They offer higher interest rate or distribution yield opportunities. They're sensitive to different factors depending on the market regime you're in. So specifically regarding municipals, we are uh, specialists in closed-end funds. And within closed-end funds, municipals or that sector is the largest sector of the entire space. It makes up about one-third. So when we thought about non-traditional products, specifically closed-end funds, and then within closed-end funds, starting in municipals was the natural progression. It's pretty interesting that it makes up such a large percentage of that market. I think that's something that probably not a lot of people know. It's interesting. You guys have created the fund and, and jumped into the space at a time that is really historic. We had March 2020 with the beginning of the pandemic. And since then, we, we've had a, a steady March higher. So you've really seen like the highs and lows of what a potential market could bring. And, and that's been pretty exciting. Has anything during the pandemic really shaken your thesis to, you know, munis are an asset class that we want to continue to be in at all? It's a fair question, just given the sensitivity around municipals and the fiscal backdrop that we've all worked through or the, the support that was created. If anything, it's actually quite the opposite, Eric. What the pandemic revealed to us, and I think to a lot of others, is that the municipal bond market is a cornerstone of the United States capital markets and an area that the government officials, not just the Federal Reserve, but on the, the legislative branch, as well as the executive branch, wanted to maintain the integrity of that during this period. And evidence of that was one of their programs that they put in place, which was where they ring-fenced almost $3.4 trillion market being municipal bonds with a Federal Reserve program. And then later, as new fiscal support came into place, there was additional fiscal support in, in significant size where distributions were sent to each of the various states in different increments. And so what it did to me is it reinforced the importance of this sector for the retirement community, for the ability of local municipalities, cities, states to be able to maintain their way of life. And if anything, they put a floor under it and set precedent where they may do that in perpetuity now based on what they did during the pandemic. So it actually gives us additional layer of comfort that there's a, a, a quote de facto put option now under the market that didn't exist prior. I was hoping you were going to give an answer that was as bold up as that. <laughs> so, I mean, Because that's, that's really where we're coming from, too, in, in how we view credit. And I know that having talked to you prior, we get a little bit more granular as far as looking at individual names, individual sectors, then you guys are taking more of a macro approach to the market. But given those dynamics from your increased comfort level, any thought to expanding the Rareview product line into other facets of dipping into the municipal market at all? As you mentioned, we have a set of public funds and we have a number of separately managed account strategies. One of them in terms of expansion, which we're quite fond of, it, it's not necessarily expansion for us. It currently exists. 
is that you can apply our strategy and investment process at the state level as well. And it works very well in, in two large states or two large municipal issuing states, both California and New York. And given the tax sensitivities in both of those states, which I think New York is in the process of trying to surpass California or leapfrog them in terms of their state tax liability and and what they're going to extract from their citizens, those two states are ripe for having further customization at the state level, which would potentially enhance the tax efficiency associated with that strategy. So to specifically answer your question, regarding municipal bond expansion. I think there should be a greater push around the states that want to penalize you the most regarding taxes. And that's where the expansion would be. It's interesting. We've seen that on a spread basis, right? The California and New York bonds, the buyer base there is really price insensitive because it doesn't matter how high they get they still have a very firm bid out there because it seems that people are just unwilling to pay taxes and they're willing to pay any price to do so. So certainly, I guess that would benefit you in, in rare view as far as expansion and in, in sort of accounts for those specialty states. But you know, I think at some point, though, there probably has to be a limit to where the insanity has to stop paying $145 for a California muni just doesn't make any sense and you're better off in a taxable structure. You guys could step into that void as well, right? Yes, that's a fair point. Uh, and there are thousands of securities regarding that. And not all of them are well above par, like you just referenced. That said, you do have to be mindful that at some point, bond trading above par is going to mature at par. And there's a potential loss factor associated with that. So you want to be mindful what those break-even points are. In the absence of a scenario where you're buying a bond well above par, and you're buying it at what is perceived as fair value, the reality is that the distribution characteristics on a taxable equivalent yield basis. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the, there's three tax brackets at the higher level when you incorporate the state tax level in California. So if you combine the state with the the, the federal, you know, you're somewhere between 43, 47 or above 50%. When you factor those, what ultimately ends up happening is the taxable equivalent yield just becomes so powerful that it offsets the risk factor of, I might have this pull to par effect at, at maturity where I lose of my money one, two or three years from now, or am I paying really a little bit above the market and my distribution yield is going to be a little bit lower because the, the tax efficiency is really a powerful concept when it comes to California specifically. Yeah, I want to hop into to fund flows for a second. It's something that we track. The market is fully engaged as far as trying to get directional sentiment from money coming in and occasionally going out of the market. And municipal bond flows in particular and ETFs have have really been leading other asset classes all through this year. And and even through most of last year, much of that in the municipal space has been on the back of this fear of higher taxes that may or may not pan out given recent news out of Washington. But if you look at the landscape of ETFs, right? Passive options like MOB and VTAB, they really grab the lion's share there. But in my perspective, there seems to be a ton of runway for closed-end funds to seal some of that market share, especially when you have the performance to sort of back that up. I mean, talk to us about what your plans are for growth after this year from a flow standpoint, an AUM standpoint. In particular, out of curiosity to me, is is there a limit to where the fund gets 
too big to really be effective with the strategies you guys are doing? I'm going to unpack that, I think, into several different answers. The first one is that it's probably important to recognize when it comes to closed-end funds broadly, that 70% of all of those assets are traditionally held by the retail investor. They're a passive investment product for them in the sense that they want to collect their income or their annual allowance and they set it in. And so there is uh, there is scope for that to always to continue to happen because they need a taxable equivalent yield that allows for them to reach the goal of being able to pay for their life. So there will always be that backdrop. Secondly, there is, as I mentioned earlier in, the, in this podcast, a third of the universe is municipal closed-end funds. So there's always an emphasis on that by default. There are new products coming to market through the IPO process, meaning new closed-end funds. There are partnerships between traditional municipal bond managers and closed-end fund specialists where they toggle between the allocation between cash and closed-end fund municipals, depending on the environment that they're in. And so we think that'll continue because the space can absorb a fair amount based on the fact that it's a third of that. But moving on to other reasons why the growth should continue is that when you look at the municipal bond closed-end fund total return relative to the cash municipal bond market, whether you're on a short, medium, or long-term basis, and let's just use real numbers. So one year, three year, five years, or 10 years. The fact is that the closed end fund product outperforms cash municipal bonds by a fairly large margin on any one of those metrics. By default, there should always be interest in growing the assets in that space as a result of that potential outperformance on various time buckets. And then finally, and really most importantly, When you think about tax brackets, doesn't matter whether you're in the 32, 35, or 37 tax bracket, but if you think about the ultra wealthy that you referenced earlier in the highest tax bracket, municipal bond closed-end funds offer a tax equivalent yield over cash municipal bonds by almost three and a half times. So if you're in very simple mathematic terms, if you're receiving 1% from a cash municipal bond, you have the potential to receive over three and a half percent of a yield or a distribution yield in the municipal bond closed end funds. I don't think that can be ignored in the big picture if somebody is retiring and they're looking for a certain allowance each year, this is a space you have to go get that. So when you add up the taxable equivalent yield over cash municipal bonds, the short, medium, and long-term outperformance of the municipal bond closed end funds over cash bonds, and the continuation of the capital markets cooperating and bringing new products to the market, I think there's scope for this to absolutely continue. Regarding our business, I don't think we'll do anything different in the medium term. We are where we need to be. We think we have a process that works, evidenced by the outcome over the last year, and we'll continue to do that. And we think as time goes on, especially now that the government has put a floor under the municipal bond market, that more interest will pick up in this, especially as more of these types of podcasts with education come out, it'll embolden others to learn about it and then participate. As far as growth, you guys have the new arrow, your quiver to help you there. I I believe you guys just hit your one-year track mark for performance, right? So that's a big chest thumping that you have to go out and show the marketplace, right? A pretty good track record that people have been waiting for. And just by the numbers, right? Your strategy is outperforming other similar funds by over 200 basis 
points. It's really no small feat in a world with little yield or spread. The thing that sort of comes to my head is what do you see as the biggest headwinds over the next six to 12 months in terms of avoiding some sort of like sophomoric type slump? So yes, uh, our public funds have had a solid year. Our private products or our separately managed account strategies, we've actually been running these for almost five years and they, they have had shown similar types of outcomes. So we're very familiar with this. It's not new. It's just the, uh, the public side of things is new or less than uh, a little over a year. And in regards to headwinds in municipal bonds, especially closed end fund, it's a very generic response. It's whether interest rates rise specifically short-term interest rates. So in municipal bond closed-end funds, while there is always a duration sensitivity inside a a fund that might hold a thousand plus securities, the duration at the NAV level, it can be traditionally risk managed regarding seeking to protect against a a cyclical rise in interest rates. That's a mathematical formula based Mm -hmm. on the exposure of the duration. Our products are are probably in that intermediate to long-term duration between five and seven years type of a bucket when it comes to municipals. But the real issue when it comes to interest rates, which is also a mechanical outcome, is that if the short-term borrowing rate, i.e. the Fed funds rate, were to rise because the Federal Reserve actually raised the interest rate, not just what the market is pricing, it has to be the formal increase of that rate, that has the potential to negatively impact the discount to the net asset value. And in its most simplest form, when you raise an interest rate, the borrow cost increases for a closed end fund. And as a result, you potentially are at risk of seeing a distribution yield uh, cut or a reduction in that distribution yield. If that distribution yield becomes less valuable, there is scope for the discount to the net asset value to widen out incrementally or almost proportionally with that series of interest rate cuts. So to the extent you believe or others believe that we are going to enter a Federal Reserve hiking cycle, navigating the contours of that cycle will be very important for a active manager in the closed end fund space. And, And that's where we come in or an active manager, we are not passive. So if I was into a passive product, I would have a higher degree of nervousness heading into mid 2022 next year regarding the municipal bond sector or any interest rate sensitive sector doing that. If I wanted to continue to receive a high tax equivalent yield, I would migrate those assets or resources to an active manager that seeks to protect the portfolio from a cyclical rise in interest rates. That's what we do. We're active. We provide a risk overlay strategy to potentially mitigate any drawdown. But no question, Erica, we don't need to dance around this. If there is a significant rise in interest rates and we were to enter a hiking cycle similar to 2018, where the Federal Reserve was hiking well above the neutral rate, and that created a series of rolling bear markets across asset classes or pop-up thunderstorms, this product or all products that use any version of leverage or borrow money to to acquire more underlying assets will be at risk. You want to have a steady pair of hands watching over that. 
No, I totally agree. We've, we've written on this subject, I believe, two times probably over the last year because it's fascinating to me just the, the difference between active and passive management when it comes to these fund products. The analogy we sort of gave to our audience is that we look at the levers that you know muni portfolio managers can pull. It's like a three-legged stool, right? To generate alpha, you, you have credit, duration. And of course you're talking about leverage and you're right. Obviously like that impacts that leg of the stool for you guys should the Fed embark on a rate hiking cycle. But on the flip side, you would think that if we get into a bearish type cycle, that spreads are going to widen out and then you would have more play almost on the credit, the strategy. I think right now you guys are 16, 17% in triple B bonds. You know, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that would be a good opportunity possibly to expand the allocation to the lower credit bucket, especially given sort of your outlook that the Fed has come in and put a floor under credit issues in a sense. So I, I think the spirit of what you just said, Eric, is correct. Let me just uh, tweak it a little bit and maybe describe what you just did and, and, and apply it to the closed-end fund universe with slightly different terminology. Some of the non-traditional advantages of closed-end funds is, is that they're the only instrument that we know of where you could potentially make three different ways. One is they have a high distribution yield. Two is there's a potential for principal appreciation from market beta exposure to the the municipal bond asset class. And third, there's a quote unquote potential for alpha generation that comes through changes in closed end fund discounts to their net asset value. So every cycle or every six to 12 months, discounts do fluctuate. And depending on the type of closed end fund, or as you referenced, the credit profile or credit quality profile of that closed end fund, whether it's investment grade or has elements of high yield associated with the underlying instruments, those discounts have the potential to move around at a quicker pace and they have a potential to widen in a more significant way than other instruments. And so our job as a closed end fund manager is to try to take advantage of that fear in the marketplace and that dislocation in the marketplace And one way that ourselves and others do that, which is a different process than the passive guys, where they're just on the index in perpetuity, and it is what it is, what we do in the alpha generation size is we have a model-driven approach that selects the cheapest closed-end fund based on a variety of factors. And, And at any given time, there's a bull or bear market going on in, in, in one of these. And you want to rotate incrementally. It's not highly tactical, but on an intermediate term basis, call it within a three to 12 month period, you want to buy the ones that are cheap and sell the ones that are more expensive and rinse and repeat that process in a systematic way, which we do. And if it's done right and you can demonstrate that you can generate that additional alpha in a bull or a bear market, then I think you check the box that you found the right active manager. It's it's real easy to make money and generate alpha in a bull market when interest rates are low. But if they can outperform that index on the downside when interest rates are rising, I think you're onto something with that with that active manager. I want to get back to a point that you made earlier, just about the rising interest rate environment, because it's something obviously 
not over the last week, but we we've sort of observed over the last month and a half, let's say. We've had a rise in treasury yields, muties have flagged to some degree, but also ticked higher. It's been a rough time for fixed income in general. How the strategy that you're running right now, does that leave you exposed to bigger swings when we're in a market like that? I know you touched on it above talking about the leverage in particular, right? But I mean, how does that navigation impact a quick reversal like we've seen? Uh, Again, an important question regarding this type of strategy, municipal bonds, both cash and closed end funds, how do they operate in these types of regimes? So the the first answer always is is that let's just be honest with what you have. If an interest rate rises and there's an inflation component associated with that, that's generally troublesome for a fixed income holding. So we start with that backdrop. Related to something positive in the environment, meaning everything is very cyclical at the moment, that's not necessarily a bad thing. The question is, and and where you start to delve deeper into this is, what is the rate of change in the yield approach? So is yields grinding up over a three-month period by 30 basis points because the environment is strong, or one-time digital adjustment where we move up 30 basis points in one day, and what impact would that have? Our products are built to work accordingly if yields gradually rise. However, if there is a exogenous shock that leads to a cyclical adjustment overnight, these strategies and similar ones tend to suffer, meaning they're not huge amounts, but they tend to suffer. The final question always then is, is that it depends on what's your starting point. If you're coming from a scenario where the discounts are minus 8% in the universe of to what the net asset value is, the scope for them to widen out further or for the fund to see a further drawdown is much more limited than one that starts at a premium to the net asset value or maybe at just a minus 1%. It just so happens to be that in the last month or so, call it really, Eric, since the Federal Reserve meeting in mid-September, when they became more hawkish and changed their stance regarding the tapering of asset purchases, that municipal bond closed-end funds were at a minus 1% discount on average. So they had chopped a lot of wood over the last 12 months since the pandemic. So walking into that event was not so exciting for people who were exposed without any overlay protection. That said, now here we are a month and a, a month or so later, and the products have seen a, a meaningful discount widening of about 4% or 5% in some cases. So we're back to the middle of the range. And so the entry point is actually a lot more opportunistic. You measure that, Eric, versus where we're priced in the interest rate hiking cycle. So basically you're buying a 5% discount at the moment, knowing that the Fed is currently priced to raise interest rates at least two times, if not closer to three times now next year, starting in April, May, June period as current amount. So if you have a view where you want to collect income, this seems like a good entry point. A month and a half ago, there was probably a a little bit of patience would have been proved uh, prudent in hindsight. Yeah, it's interesting. We're in this environment within fixed income over the last several years where it's been a race to the bottom in terms of fees. Obviously, passive is leading that charge, you know, with products like, you know, MUB and VTAB charging very low single digit basis points for management. And, you know, obviously what you're doing is a level of sophistication above and beyond mirroring an index, but has it made it more challenging launching a product in that fee environment where you're commanding and asking for a premium? In general, there are are several layers and and ways to look at 
fees. One thing in a, in a closed-end fund in general, not an ETF, but in a closed-end fund, those products are permanent capital, and they tend to have a portfolio manager that is a specialist in their respective space. And you have the ability to access corners or pockets of the markets that other products don't have. And so you generally have to pay a higher fee than a passive product or a traditional fixed income product. And that should be the case because these are all non-traditional products and you're bringing a level of expertise to the table. The second one is depending on how active the person is, if they can demonstrate again, alpha generation over their peer group and the passive indices, then they should command uh, a higher premium in general. Again, assuming that they can demonstrate alpha generation in both a bull and a bear market. And then thirdly, if they have a derivative expertise where they can implement a risk overlay strategy, that should also be taken into consideration in the fee structures. Meaning, would you be willing to pay a slightly higher amount knowing that you might be able to save yourself potentially two to 4% a year if things went wrong for you? All of those elements collectively add up to a higher fee structure. And then finally, you have to remember that the performance or the total return of these strategies over a very long period of time is somewhere between five and 8% per annum. And so it is in within the guidelines of, or the industry standards of what people charge for when they're trying to generate an an 8% return versus say the cash markets that don't really do a whole lot. It's interesting that you put it in context that you're almost paying the fee now for protection when you enter a bear market cycle, because to me, that just says you're paying some level of insurance. And it's interesting because fundamentally, I think investors get the idea of insurance, right? They insure individual municipal bonds, they pay for insurance on their homes or their cars. But it's, you know, I think the the general attitude into at least some retail pockets is that they want to pay the lowest fee possible. And you know, I would imagine that does have some difficult conversations when trying to explain the nuances around how active is differentiated from passive. You just nailed it. And there's not much more for me to add. It's real simple. If you want to own a portfolio of closed-end funds, and you want to do it via a passive product, you are exposed to the downside. And in certain environments, that downside can be very significant and has been significant. If you want to find a manager that seeks to protect the downside to at least avoid a catastrophic drawdown to keep you invested during that period, you have to pay for that. Look, I mean, you're a manager who's not just focused on exempts. You have a taxable product as well on the SMA platform too. So what's keeping you awake at night right now? There are certain instances in general that historically have kept me awake regarding risk management. We're not in one of those environments right now, but we're getting closer to one of those. So historically, and this is, I would say, Eric, is a little bit more of an advanced concept. So Bear with me, I'll try to unbundle it. There's a scenario where equity volatility rises, led by the real interest rate going more positive in a very fast way. Credit spreads in response to that tend to widen based on the move in that real interest rate. And then finally, crude oil going down in that scenario because that leads to some version of demand destruction. So you basically have a rise in real interest, widening in credit spreads, and a sell-off of, in crude oil of more than, say, 15%. In my experience as a risk manager, 
there is no way to protect against that scenario. To be fair, the last time we saw that was probably five years ago during the energy bear market. And that had a real impact on the high yield credit space, uh, specifically around the energy complex. That's something in general that keeps me up at night. The second one is a little bit more philosophical, Eric, and I, I think you'll appreciate this response. So again, bear with me. This is not necessarily market-oriented. It's more philosophical these days, but it seems to be becoming more of a reality. So just to be clear, we tend to operate in the medium term from an investment standpoint. So call it three to 18 months. As I mentioned at the onset of this call, I'm very agnostic to being a bull or a bear, inflationist, deflationist. However, there are several instances philosophically in the last year and a half that should give all investors pause. And let me explain what those two things are. Mm -hmm. the, the first one naturally is that the U.S. government, along with other governments around the world, have created 15 to $25 trillion out of thin air in response to the pandemic. By all measures of investing, that defies the laws of physics on its own merit, right? It's an immovable force. Secondly, the greening of the climate for the right reasons we all know that if we were to actually make a green transition, that dollar price is somewhere over $100 trillion. To the extent some version of that has been front-loaded from the pandemic till now, call it X trillions of dollars, that's a second immovable force that cannot be handicapped in any investment guide or textbook that somebody grew up reading. And then when you marry that with this significant change, which is important is, is that we were at war during the pandemic. So the Treasury and the Federal Reserve were merged into one in response to that war. And we de facto had what was called the Fedgery, where we married those. We coined this term the Fedgery. And we moved from a monetary policy regime to a fiscal policy regime. Mm -hmm. And what that means is really simple. For the last 10 years, we've been in a homogenous environment where Basically, the inner core of the central bank, being the Federal Reserve, created a policy of forward guidance, zero interest rates, and quantitative easing. And they exported that policy to every other central bank in the world for the last 10 years. It was a great, nice lifestyle. It reminds me metaphorically of we all lived in the Shire in Lord of the Rings, and you had nothing else you had to worry about when that's exactly. happening. Yeah. Fast forward now, it's actually the opposite. When you transfer monetary policy to fiscal policy, we are now hostage to a Congress, call it 400 plus people when you think of the both bodies of Congress, the House and the Senate, the administration, which would include the Treasury. And then you replicate that now in Europe, as well as in different countries in Asia. We now have thousands of people making decisions. So we have moved from a, homo a, a, a homogenous environment to a heterogeneous environment alongside those two, two immovable forces being 15 to 25 trillion of money creation and the greening of the climate. I don't know what all that means, but I am humble enough to know that combination means that some things are going to change. And so that's what keeps me up at night to specific to answer your question. In response to that, Again, everything that we're doing at Rareview Capital is in response to that new environment that's coming over the next several years. Again, how do we find yield? How do we protect our purchasing power? And how do we avoid a catastrophic drawdown in the stock market? And so that's how I address keeping me up at night. 
That's a great answer, fully fleshed out. And I have one last question before sure. we need to wrap up here. ESG, it seems to be everywhere. It seems to be in vogue strategy for every manager. What are your thoughts on it? My thoughts are that it's an important feature. It's not necessarily if you're on the, you know, attaching this to investing, not philosophy. If you want to be left behind, reject ESG. If you want to be in the game, embrace ESG. And then within ESG, I think philosophically, you can't fake that. You would need to find products that are, are close to your heart or close to your firm's ethos, values, morals, and embrace that and, and, and marry that with the skill sets that you have or go out and hire the people that can do it. But I think it is here to stay. I think at this stage, Eric, it probably makes up 30% of the investable universe in the equity markets. I think we are on the cusp of integrating that now into the credit and credit markets. Again, credit being that they're issued by corporations predominantly, and there needs to be an ESG or socially responsible component with those corporate bonds, whether they're investment grade or high yield. So I think it'll be expanding now in the coming uh, years to fixed income. And people forget that is a significant uh, component of, of that market. It, it's an exciting time, right? It's an exciting time. Like, I view municipals as the original sustainable investment. It's hard to think that there's going to be all these strategies going to come into this limited pool of munis and really shake things up unless there's meaningful increase in new issuance, which uh, frankly, I'm hopeful for when we get some clarity on these federal plans. But until then, it's definitely something that we're keeping an eye on as well. With that, I want to thank you, Neil. This has been awesome. For those who want to reach out to Neil, he's on the terminal. You can find them there. Also check out their website, rareviewfunds.com. And thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Eric, it was great to be here on your inaugural podcast. Best of luck on the future. Bloomberg Intelligence is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg Intelligence should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.